Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 12, Leviticus chapters 9 and 10. As we go through Leviticus chapter 9 tonight, it's going to point out a whole variety of God principles that have a simple and quick reading can rather easily overlook. So, while we're not going to spend a lot of time on the details of the rituals that we're going to read, we're going to look more closely at what those rituals are meant to teach us. Okay. And in chapter 9, we see that the consecration of the priesthood and the tabernacle itself will be completed, and now Moses will start to fade to the background, right? And the priests will come forward and to begin to assume their duties as the officiators of all the prescribed rites and rituals. The ordination or consecration rituals of the priesthood go on as instructed back in chapter 8 and have been going on for a period of a week. That means that this same series of ritual procedures are repeated every day for seven days. And they're officiated by Moses, not by Aaron. Because until the end of that seven-day consecration period, Aaron and his sons are not authorized by God to begin their duties as priests. Now, it's quite interesting and unique that Jehovah uses Moses as a mediator between he and the people and even between God and the priesthood. Now when Joshua took over after Moses' death, he did not inherit Moses' role as a go-between. Perhaps this will help us to understand why Jews to this day revere Moses so highly. Jehovah made it clear that whatever Moses spoke was done in God's authority. That whatever Moses spoke, it was as if God himself spoke it. Now, obviously, not everything Moses spoke during those 40 years in the wilderness is told in the Bible. We get precious few of Moses' words, in fact, and we also find that not everything Moses orders is prefaced with the words and God instructed Moses. This means Moses did not necessarily get a direct revelation from Jehovah before each time a matter of some sort was dealt with. So let's get the correct picture here. While no doubt Moses was acting sometimes on direct and specific orders from the Lord, at other times... Moses was acting on general instructions and established principles that Jehovah had taught him over a period of time. So the majority of the time, it was Moses' own judgment on various matters that was happening. And Jehovah says the people were to take Moses' judgment on all matters just as though it was coming from God himself. Now, the only other person in Holy Scripture who was given such incredible authority and whose every utterance was to be taken as, well, gospel, was Jesus. Who indeed was not only mediator, but God in the flesh. So, let's give Moses his due and recognize this nearly unparalleled position of power placed upon him by Jehovah. Certainly there is no one to compare to him in the Old Testament. But let's also recognize the important God principle laid down in the life of Moses for we 21st century believers. It is that sometimes God will show us directly and plainly his specific will on some matter in our lives. But far more often than usual, after teaching us his ways and his laws and his commands, he will allow us to exercise our own judgment. 
And if we have hearkened to him, we will choose wisely and correctly. We will make our judgments in accordance with the Father's will as he stated it to us in the Holy Scriptures and therefore his will shall be carried out on earth as it is in heaven. Let's read Leviticus chapter 9 together. Leviticus chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron, his sons, and the leaders of Israel and said to Aaron, Take a male calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before Adonai. Tell the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before Adonai. Also a grain offering mixed with olive oil, because today Adonai is going to appear to you. They brought what Moshe had ordered them before the tent of meeting and the whole community approached and stood before Adonai. Moshe said, this is what Adonai has ordered you to do so that the glory of Adonai will appear to you. Moses told Aaron, approach the altar, offer your sin offering and the burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then present the offering of the people and make atonement for them, as Adonai ordered. So Aaron approached the altar, slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. The sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. Then he poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, and the covering of the liver of the sin offering he made go up in smoke on the altar, as Adonai had ordered Moses. The meat and the skin were burned up completely, outside the camp. Next he slaughtered the burnt offering. Aaron's sons brought him the blood and he splashed it against all sides of the altar. They brought him the burnt offering piece by piece and the head and he made them go up and smoke on the altar. He washed the inner organs, lower parts of the legs and made them go up and smoke on top of the burnt offering on the altar. Then the people's offering was presented. He took the goat of the sin offering which was for the people slaughtered it offered it for sin like the earlier sin offering and the burnt offering was presented and he offered it in the prescribed manner the grain offering was presented he took a handful of it made it go up and smoke on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering he slaughtered the ox and the ram the people's sacrifice as peace offerings. Aaron's son brought in the blood, which he splashed against all the sides of the altar, and the fat of the oxen of the ram, the fat tail, the fat which covers the inner organs, the kidneys and the covering of the liver. And they put the fat on the breasts, and he made the fat go up and smoke on the altar. The breasts and right thigh Aaron waved as a wave offering before Adonai, as Moshe had ordered. Aharon raised his hands towards the people, and blessed them and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. Moshe and Aharon entered the tent of meeting, came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Fire came forth from the presence of Adonai, consuming the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. The first words of chapter 9 are on the eighth day. And it refers to that day when the priesthood is at last empowered and authorized to perform the Jehovah-ordained rituals inside the grounds of the tabernacle. No longer is Moses going to officiate. Aaron, the first high priest, is now able to. And what we see is that a whole set of rituals involving virtually every kind of sacrifice except for the Asham offering, the reparation offering, every other kind of offering is going to be performed. And this first set of offerings is kind of unique because it's the very first sacrificial rituals that are being performed by the newly formed priesthood of Israel. So this is truly a momentous watershed event. And we probably ought to make special mark of it in our Bibles to identify this moment in time. Now let me comment on something that's both controversial and important. During these seven days, 
of the consecration ceremony, there's been a lot of sacrificing and a lot of burning things up on that brazen altar. Yet, it's only at the end of that sequence and of this chapter that we see the Lord, it says, light the fire of the brazen altar by his own hand. And as we've already been told in Torah, and we're going to be told again later, this fire must never be allowed to go out because it's divine fire. And only divine fire can be used to burn up sacrifices. The general agreement among the Hebrew sages of old is that what was going on prior to the Lord billowing forth that fire to the altar was kind of a dry run, if you would, for lack of a better word, during those seven days of consecration. The fire that was being used during that seven days was not divine fire. Men had kindled it. But it was seemed to be deemed as acceptable by God for the purpose it was being used. Consecration of the priests in the tabernacle. Once that consecration was complete, though, then God, if you would, reignited that fire on the altar with holy fire, and from that moment forward, no fire that was man-made could be used to turn the sacrificed animals and grains into smoke because now the purpose was different. Now, interestingly, when we see the study of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when we see those rituals sometime later, we're going to see a very similar series of sacrifices offered. Except that in the sacrifices of Leviticus 9, the real difference is there's no scapegoat that's as there is for Yom Kippur. And instead, we find a peace offering, what's called a Zevah offering. So while Yom Kippur is a day to be commemorated in utmost soberness right, and seriousness, this first day of the official operation of the Israelite priesthood is to be treated as joyous. Now in verse 1, we're also told that besides Aaron and his sons, Moses had invited the elders of Israel to this occasion of these very first priestly sacrifices. Now, I told you last week that often when we get the words in the Torah that the whole congregation of Israel was to come to the tabernacle, the whole congregation did not always mean the entire general population of Israel. Rather, it was usually the people's representatives called the elders. Or at other times, it was those who were classified as only full citizens of Israel who were being referred to. Here, it specifically uses the word elders, zekenim, Z-E-K-E-N-I-M in Hebrew, zekenim, And this has caused some scholars to believe that in this case, it was probably even only the chief elders that came. There would have been hundreds, maybe thousands of elders. And without doubt, they would have been organized in some kind of hierarchy. So perhaps it was only the top end of the management chart that was uh, called for this specific occasion, but that's just scholarly speculation. Anyway, verse 2 says that one of the sacrificial animals is to be a calf. Now, some Bibles will, in place of calf, say bull or young bull. That They'd be correct, because the Hebrew word for calf is egel, E-G-E-L, which means a male calf. We discussed some weeks ago that when we read about these sacrifices, there were two different categories of bulls used for sacrificing. Young bulls and mature bulls. Mature bull being of greater value. A young bull here called an egel, means it's a year old. A mature bull has to be at least three years old. It's interesting that the choice of the Hebrew word egel is used here because it's not usual in Leviticus to refer to the younger sacrificial bull as egel. Rather, The Hebrew words that are typically used for that particular sacrifice, that animal, young bull, is ben-par. B-E-N-P-A-R. Ben-par. Perhaps we get a little clue 
why this unusual use of the word Egel is presented in this verse from the fact that the infamous golden calf which Aaron and his sons helped to build only weeks earlier was also called an Egel. One gets the sense that the Lord is making a point here. Making a connection. Reminding Aaron and his sons and all the rest of us about that golden calf incident and showing them and us the contrast between God's system of pure worship and the Egyptians' pagan system of false worship. Because in God's system, an animal was never worshipped as being equal to or above a man as it was in pagan worship. Rather, an animal in God's system was sacrificed for the benefit of man because Jehovah puts the value of animals as under that of men. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we get a list of animals and grain that are to be used in this particular inaugural sacrifice. And we also get the answers to the purpose of this particular ritual being a little bit different than what the future standard daily sacrificial rituals are going to look like. It is because it says, today the Lord is going to appear to you. Actually, what it says is, today Yehovah is going to appear to you. I mean, this is a pretty important occasion. Okay, In verse 6, the concept of Yehovah appearing to them is refined a little bit more. It says, it's the glory or the presence of God that will appear to Israel. It's the kavod, K-A-V-O-D, of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Israel was already beginning to understand that without Yehovah's presence in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was nothing but a really expensive tent. And that sometimes Yehovah's presence would be there, sometimes it wouldn't be there. So Israel would always be in great anticipation of God's presence filling up that tabernacle. Now, let's think about that for a second and apply it to our lives. What is a human being without the presence of Yehovah in us? Without the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, what are we? Nothing but expensive tents. An empty shell that serves no divine purpose. And like all tents, some are prettier than others. But overall, it's just a place to live. A person can do all the right things, be moral, upstanding, kind, productive, charitable. I mean, what the world would call a truly good person. But just like that tabernacle that's filled with all that fabulous furniture, precious metals, tons of it, and beautiful art, it really serves... No divine purpose unless the Lord God is present there. Oh, it it certainly was significantly more awesome that tent was to look at than the regular goat hair tents that the average Israelite lived in. But without God's presence, there was no more value to that fabulous tabernacle than there was to all those other common, dusty, smelly tents. Today, you are God's choice to be his tabernacles. His earthly tents. I mean, pray, believers, for all the empty tents in this world. The pretty and the plain. Those in your community, maybe even your family. And certainly for all those millions of empty tents in Israel today. In verse 7, With the words, approach the altar, Moses officially turns over the administration of the priestly duties to Aaron. And we enter a new era in Israel's history. They have a priesthood. And the first offerings Aaron makes are on behalf of himself and for his sons. It's a public admission that even the priests carry sin with them. It must have been a pretty humbling experience 
And we see the typical olah, the burnt offering performed. And after this, in verse 15, Aaron now offers up sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. Notice that it was a goat that was sacrificed on behalf of the people. Why a young bull for the priests and a goat for the people? Because the sin of the priests is of greater consequence than the sin of the people. Okay. We've talked a number of times about how God classifies sins, some being more serious than others, meaning really more dangerous than others. And how the sacrificial system is even set up in a hierarchy of animals to account for these various classifications of sin. The mature bull being the most valuable to atone for the most serious sins, birds being the least. And while we should pay close attention to this, the purpose of this foundational teaching of God that we find in the Torah is not so that we can all run around and compare sins of others against our own sins and decide which of us are better or worse. It's so we can see the multifaceted nature of sin and how it can affect and infect those who come into contact with sin and how serious and devastating sin is and that it's not such a simple and straightforward matter as we've often been taught. Okay. I don't know about you, but I was always a little bothered when a preacher would say that all sins are the same before God. There, that there aren't little ones and big ones. That stealing a candy bar is no different than murder in God's eyes because both are sin and God makes no distinction well you know what that just is not what we've been reading now week after week after week after week that is just not true let's not confuse what we're told by Paul in the New Testament that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God Versus what we see over and over in Leviticus concerning sin. Paul was speaking concerning our corrupted natures and the inevitable result. The impossibility that that nature, as we're born with, could ever be acceptable to God. And therefore, there has never been a human, except for Yeshua, who's not committed at least a tiny sin caused by our naturally corrupt nature. So all men are in the same boat in that context. The Levitical sacrificial system demonstrates that principle that Paul's talking about by means of the Olah and the Mincha sacrifices which have to be performed on a daily basis for all Israel. No one, including the priesthood, is exempted. Yet the nature of men is also a separate issue from the behavior of men. And the sacrificial system also demonstrates that. The various classifications of sins and the sacrificial ritual acquired to atone for each of these classes concerns the behavior itself, the intent, and even the position a particular man holds in society. Put another way, Paul, in his pronouncement that all men of sin can come short of God's glory, is talking more about who we are and less about what we do. Okay. And who we are is the same among all men in God's eyes. That is, we're all equally guilty of being born of a sin nature. No exceptions. Now, what we do is quite another matter. God does not equate stealing a candy bar with murder. God does not equate telling a lie to a person with committing adultery. What we do is indeed categorized with some of our acts being less serious offenses, others being what the word calls an abomination. And we don't need to wonder about which is which, because the Torah tells us all that in great detail. Now, what we have to grasp is that even though the classifications of sins remains in effect to this day, that there are indeed more and less serious disobediences, 
the sacrifice required to atone to atone for each one of those each one of those disobedient behaviors big or small has been reduced to but one the blood of Jesus okay and it is that same sacrifice that's also required to atone for our natures okay the blood of Yeshua has replaced every sacrificial procedure he is the one and only authorized atonement but the fact that sinful behavior can be more or less serious, more or less offensive to God, more or less dangerous to God's holiness and to the community of believers, that remains. Okay? Now, one of the most poignant moments of this special priestly inaugural ceremony must have been what is recorded in verse 22. It says that Aaron steps forward and he raises up his hands over the people and he blesses them. Now, we're not told at this point what words were spoken. The Sephra followed by Rashi and some other great Hebrew sages though say that the blessing Aaron pronounced is what's recorded in Numbers 622 through 627. Now take a moment, just don't look at me, just take a moment and imagine yourself out there in that pristine desert wilderness 3,500 years ago, you're in a sea of people. Okay? There's a little dry breeze out there that's kicking up whirlpools of dust. The valley at the foot of Mount Sinai is acting like a natural megaphone that greatly amplifies Aaron's voice. Thick smoke and the smell of burning animal flesh is rising, billowing upward from that brazen altar and Aaron and his splendid high priest garments pauses the ritual and he steps forward towards you and he raises his hands above you and on behalf of the God of the universe pronounces this blessing upon you. May Yehovah bless you and keep you. May Yehovah let his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yehovah show you his face and bring you peace. I mean, with that, Moses and Aaron entered the tabernacle and into the presence of the Lord. And then the presence of the Lord appeared to all the people. God confirmed his pleasure and acceptance of all that had been done in strict accordance to his instructions and commands. And he did that by sending forth divine fire and consuming all that was at that moment already smoldering on the brazen altar. And thereby he changed the character, the nature of that brazen altar from merely glorious to utterly divine. Okay. I mean, the, the crowd, it says, gasped in awe. The people's knees grew weak from trying to take it, take it in, everything that they had just witnessed with their own eyes. In spontaneous reaction, it says, they shouted. And then they fell on their faces out of fear respect and gratitude to the Father of all things. And what a day that was. I would have loved to have been there. Not too far into the future, with the rebuilding of the third temple in Jerusalem, a very similar event will occur. And I suspect it's going to produce a very similar reaction to everybody that's there. Let's move on to Leviticus chapter 10. But Nadav and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, his fire pan, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and then offered unauthorized fire before Adonai something he hadn't ordered them to do. At this, 
fire came forth from the presence of Adonai and consumed them so that they died in the presence of Adonai. Moshe said to Aharon, this is what Adonai said. Through those who are near to me, I will be consecrated and before all people, I will be glorified. Aaron kept silent. Moshe called Mishael and Elsaphan, the sons of Uziel, Aaron's uncle, and told them, come here, carry your cousins away from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. And they approached and they carried them in their tunics outside the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses told Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, don't unbind your hair. Don't tear your clothes in mourning so that you won't die and so that Adonai won't be angry with the entire community. Rather, let your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, mourn because of the destruction Adonai brought about with his fire. Moreover, don't leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because Adonai's anointing oil is on you. And Adonai said to Aaron, don't drink any wine or other intoxicating liquor, neither you nor your sons with you when you enter the tent of meeting so that you will not die. This is to be a permanent regulation throughout all your generations so that you will distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so that you will teach the people of Israel all the laws Adonai has told them through Moses. Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his remaining sons. Take the grain offering left from the offerings of Adonai made by fire and eat it without leaven next to the altar because it is especially holy. Eating it in a holy place because it is your and your son's share of the offerings for Adonai made by fire. For this is what I have ordered. The breast that was waved and the thigh that was raised you're to eat in a clean place. You, your sons, and your daughters with you. For these are given as your and your children's share of the sacrifices of the peace offerings presented by the people of Israel. They are to bring the raised thigh and the waved breast along with the offerings of fat made by fire and wave it as a wave offering before Adonai. Then it will belong to you and to your descendants with you as your perpetual share as Adonai has ordered. Then Moshe carefully investigated what had happened to the goat of the sin offering and discovered that it had been burned up. He became angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the remaining sons of Aaron, and asked, Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the area of the sanctuary since it's especially holy? He gave it to you to take away the guilt of the community to make atonement for them before Adonai. Look, its blood wasn't brought into the sanctuary. Right? You should have eaten it there in the sanctuary as I ordered. Aharon answered Moses, even though they offered their sin offering and burnt offering today, things like these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have pleased Adonai? On hearing this reply, Moses was satisfied. Well, chapter 10 takes an interesting detour for a short time. And it begins by telling the rather startling and grisly story of Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Abihu, who are killed by Yehovah for an offense against him. Now we're going to go look at their death and its cause very carefully because 1,300 years later, a very similar incident would occur. And it too is recorded in the scriptures. Now, first, though, we need to step back and look at this chapter from a wider view and understand that in many ways it's going to pull together so much of what we've been learning. So far, Leviticus has challenged us primarily by laying out long lists of minutely detailed rituals, each of them for carefully defined purposes, all associated with the matters of sin and the other end of the scale of holiness. And I'm sure that for many of you, our study of Leviticus has been anything from difficult to fathom to somewhat tedious. 
Okay. But just like we, when we were in grade school and first learning basic arithmetic, it is necessary to wade through a whole series of rules and memorization and new concepts and principles before one can make any sense of it or to begin to make any kind of useful practical application. So I applaud you for staying with it. It's about to start paying off. Now, several years ago, in an adult Sunday school class, I was teaching and it became necessary to examine a certain aspect of God's character. And that aspect was his willingness to judge and punish and even destroy when necessary. And not long into that teaching concerning this attribute of our Lord, a man who along with his wife regularly attended his class raised his hand. And he made a rather terse comment that went something like this. I don't come to church to hear about God's judgment. I come to hear about his love. My God is love. And that's all I'm interested in. And that was his last Sunday. He never came back again. And his reaction really took me back. And I thought about it for several weeks. And it ended up causing me to accept the reality that indeed our God is a God of many contrasts. So, when reading the, old, the Scriptures, whether it's the Old Testament or the New, we can read of His incredible love and mercy that would permit His own Son to die a torturous death for our sake, yet on other pages we'll read of his destruction of the entire world, of the slaying of hundreds of thousands of Egyptians because of the stubbornness of Pharaoh, and of his ordering the death, deaths of thousands of Israelites for building that defaming golden calf. This man who was so upset at me for teaching on God's attribute of judgment really represents a fair-sized portion of the modern church. Right, who prefers to set aside the biblical view of divine retribution in favor of something more warm and fuzzy. As I've heard said in one form or another from pulpits, more times and in more places than I can remember, God will always forgive us. That's his job. It's important to understand that this perception that the supposed strict and judgmental God of the Old Testament that has given way to a tolerant and all-merciful God of the New Testament is but modern and progressive theology. Okay. Examine the teachings of the learned Bible scholars of barely, of barely more than a century ago and you're going to see great concern on their parts over proper worship you're going to see them very concerned about constant self-examination to assure that we're constantly striving for purity and to obedience before God. And this to avoid the disciplinary action, or worse, loss of Jehovah's blessing upon us. Today, we describe sermons on the subject of God's judgment as being about hellfire and damnation. And most pastors won't touch that with a ten-foot pole. Why? Because most 21st century Christians don't even want to hear it. Now, true enough, as believers, we're not to focus day and night on sin. Okay? Nor are we to live a life of anxiety and worry for some imagined offense against, offense against Jehovah that we're not really able to completely identify. Or perhaps about a grievous sin we've committed that we view as possibly too horrible for even Jesus' blood to pay for. The desire to avoid God's wrath, his condemnation to an eternity in hell, and to be obedient to a fault led to morbid introspection that became all the rage in the Middle Ages. A self, I mean, self-mutilation even accompanied long prayers that might last for hours upon hours. The confession of every real or perceived or imagined sin 
that might exist within that person, all that gained popularity to the most pious-minded. And as unbalanced as all that was, it's no more out of kilter than where the bulk of modern-day Christians have arrived, that we have nothing to fear from our God. Okay? That because we've confessed loyalty to His Son, Yeshua, all of our disobedience, all of our careless worship, frivolous lifestyles will be met with a grandfatherly wink and nod from the Almighty. Okay? The idea being that now that we've purchased our fire insurance in the form of salvation, we can play with matches in fireproof suits without a care in the world. Okay? Well, I hope to put a dent in that kind of dangerous thinking and false theology by showing you examples from both the Old Testament and the New of how Yehovah reacted severely to his disobedience by his believers. Okay. I'm going to use some examples we've all heard about before, but because we might not have had the proper background and context, the principles and lessons intended might have been obscured. First, let's examine this story of Nadab and Abihu, which is told in the first few verses of Leviticus chapter 10. Then we're going to compare that with the New Testament account of Ananias and Sapphira, as told in Acts 5. And in both cases, the common element is that Yehovah took the lives of those folks on the spot for offending him. In both cases, it involves believers. Okay? In fact, Nadab and Abihu were priests. And Ananias and Sapphira were among the earliest disciples of Jesus. And in both cases... The offense seems, on the surface, to be a little more than a breach of protocol. Hardly the thing. One might expect a God who places such a high value on life and love and mercy to pronounce the death sentence over. Well, verse 1 of chapter 10 begins by introducing us to Aaron's eldest two sons, Nadav and Abihu. And Aaron if you'll recall now, is a fully consecrated high priest of Israel and Nadab and Abihu were fully consecrated common priests. In fact, due to the normal line of family succession, Nadab should have been the next high priest upon Aaron's death. Now we're told that Nadab and Abihu each took his fire pan, your Bible may say censer, but this is just simply a little vessel that was designed to transport a small pile of coals, hot coals. Okay. Then they were to put incense on it all right, to create smoke, and then they offered it to Yehovah as part of the tabernacle rituals. But there was a problem. What they offered to Yehovah, the scriptures calls alien or strange fire. Further, whatever it was they were doing, they were making it up as they went along. Okay? It was not something God ordered them to do. Okay? Suddenly, in a starkly matter-of-fact tone, we see the Lord spew forth fire and burn Nadav and Abihu up to a crisp. Okay? He kills them instantly for offending him. Immediately, Moses turns to Aaron and gives him some kind of this cryptic explanation of what has just happened. Basically saying that what Aaron's smoldering children had done was a great affront to Jehovah's holiness and as such it would not be tolerated. Especially not by the leaders of the priesthood who ought to know better. Now let's dissect this for a few minutes because it's vitally important to understand what happened here because it has everything to do with who Jehovah is. First, what is normally translated as fire, referring to this fire that Nadav and Abihu put into their censers, is in Hebrew, esh, E-S-H, esh, means hot coals. Okay? So they put hot coals into their censers, their fire pans, not a little flaming fire. And next we're told it was an alien fire, a strange fire, 
that they used. In Hebrew, this is Eish Sarah. Right? And it is actually referring to the incense, interestingly. Not so much the fire itself. Eish Sarah. It's the incense. Okay? So a little more precise meaning of this phrase, it's usually translated as strange or alien fire, might be an alien incense offering by fire. That's the point of it. Okay? The significance being that there was something wrong or defective with the nature of the offering that they were bringing to God. Now, the truth be known, there's really no universal agreement among the great and ancient Hebrew sages nor even modern Bible scholars as to the precise nature of the defect of this alien incense offering okay, that caused the deaths of these two sons of Aaron. In the Sifra, which is basically a commentary on Leviticus, a number of suggestions are made that shed some light on the subject and probably taken as a whole it's those suggestions that give us the best possible picture of what actually happened here now the nature of the offense begins in the fact that these two men were ordained priests critical element they were ordained priests they by their position of privilege were especially close to God or in the Hebrew way of saying it, they were near to God. Okay. And by implication, whatever they did wrong, they should have known better and were therefore without excuse. Okay. On a few occasions, I've read you from a translation called the Shokin Bible. Right. It's a very literal word-for-word -word translation and as a result, it could be frankly pretty hard to follow at times. Right. And in it, there was a very specific term or phrase that was repeated often when referring to those temple sacrifices and the associated rituals brought before Jehovah and to those who were authorized to bring them. In Hebrew, it is the word kirvah. K-A-R-V-A-H. Kirvah. In English, it's simply the word mir. Because it specifically refers to certain sacrifices of which the literal meaning is a near offering. Kind of an odd sounding name. And what's this getting at? What, what does near mean in its simplest sense? Close by, next to, adjacent. Okay? Near is the opposite of far. Okay? A near relative is one that is genealogically close to you, a close blood relative. So near, the term near, kirva, okay, can speak of a close, uh, of a very close association, or it can speak of a close proximity. Okay, priests were near to God in association with Him both in the sense that they were his set-apart servants given duties to perform that only they were permitted to do and they were given the privilege of being near in proximity to him by being allowed to enter his earthly dwelling place, the tabernacle. So as a principle, we find all throughout the scriptures that anyone who is labeled as near to God is held to a higher standard than those who are not. The reason for this is simple. You can only be near to the Lord if he gives you the privilege. Therefore, in a general sense, Nadab and Abihu had no room for error because they were God's privileged near servants. They were the closest to him. And the closer we get to God's holiness, the greater the responsibility one assumes because of the danger of polluting his holiness that proximity to him automatically brings with it. Over and over, Yeshua warned that teachers of the law that taught, that taught false doctrines to people instead of the scriptural truth faced far greater consequences than those who never even knew God. Okay. What was the exact nature of the offense 
of Nadav and Avahu, again, we're not entirely sure. Two violations seem most likely, though. One is that possibly they entered the, tep, uh, the, the tabernacle sanctuary and went beyond where they were supposed to go. Priests could enter into the front room, right, which is called the holy place. Only the high priest was ever permitted to go into the back room, the holy of holies, during Moses' lifetime. Due to his unique position, Moses was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies way more often than Aaron, all right, the high priest. But after Moses' death, the rules of entry into the Holy of Holies were more strictly enforced and the high priest could only go into that room once a year on Yom Kippur. Now, this conjecture that the two sons of Aaron trespassed into the Holy of Holies where they shouldn't have been, go been going and were given the death sentence for doing this is backed up by a warning given by God to Moses concerning his brother Aaron. We actually find that warning uh, a few chapters later in Leviticus 16. Don't go there, I'll just quote it to you. Leviticus 16.1 The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover of the ark or else he'll die because I appear in the cloud over that atonement cover. The next most likely reason for God's judgment upon Nadav and Abihu is that they violated the order stated back in the Exodus 30, verse 9. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense burned before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on the altar or burnt offering or meal offering and you shall not pour out a libation on it. So, at the midway point of examining this event, we see that the great privilege of being near to God brings great responsibility with it as well. And greater than normal consequences when that responsibility is abrogated. Now imagine, if you can, here is Aaron and his two sons performing the very first sacrificial rituals since they became consecrated as priests. In front of the elders who surrounded the tabernacle and in view of hundreds of thousands of Israelites who had climbed up in those surrounding hills for a glimpse of this amazing event, God in his displeasure bellows forth fire which instantly cremates Aaron's first and second born sons. Imagine this. As stunned as the crowd must have been, what about poor Aaron who had just witnessed the most horrible kind of death of his eldest two sons? Can you imagine being in a synagogue or a church and you go forward with two of your children to pray and suddenly, for no apparent reason, they burst into flame and die right before your eyes? Okay. What was going through Aaron's mind? Okay. His sadness and shock must have been overwhelming. His fear and horror must have been running a close second. What happened here? Why would Jehovah choose to do such a thing at this moment? Well, we'll delve into all that next week.